Greetings, Restoration Church. It is a joy to be with you. And it's a joy to be with you in this building. Until this weekend, I've never been in this building before, but before you were ever in this building for many years, Nathan and I would pray that the Lord would give Restoration a permanent home. And when this building was only a faint glimmer of a possibility, it seemed like Washington, D.C. was the last place of any of my friends who are pastors that the Lord might be able to provide a building. And yet here you are. And uh, the church is a people, not a building. So I rejoice much more in the church than the building. But the building is an expression of God's provision, his kindness, his faithfulness to you. It's an honor to be here. I love to be with the Knights, the Crafts. We've been so uh, kindly hosted by the Holtz. And uh, it was an honor to be here yesterday with uh, 30 or so of your men walking in courage, seeking to honestly pursue Christ and and entrust his gospel. It was beautiful, a joy to be part of. Well, this morning we want to consider what is the true heart of Christmas here in this Advent season. There are certainly lots of options in our city and in your city. Christmas is, is... Kind of at its peak when you see inflatable yard displays of various kinds. Lots of homes are filled with piles of boxes from online retailers. Every singer who's ever made an album releases for you a special Christmas album. Very special. Endless movies with very, very fringe Christmas connections somehow get called Christmas movies. Endless decorations of endless varieties, all kinds of food. But this morning, friends, is what Christmas is actually about. It's about the greatest Christmas gift, not something that you get on the 25th and put in the closet on the 28th. Not something you take to the thrift store by March or that has fallen to pieces by spring. There's one title that we will consider on this Advent Sunday, and to do so, we are going to need our Bible. So go with me to John 1, and we're going to be going to a few places in the Bible, so if you can keep uh, keep your Bible open. And in John 1.14, that's our verse that we're going to launch off with, here we see this promised one, this Emmanuel, this God with us, God in the flesh. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice the word glory. What is it when it says we see His glory? Glory is this loaded word that means God's godness, God's power, God's beauty, God's love. God's kindness, God's justice. So Jesus comes and he's full of God's godness, full of God's glory. But he's also marked by this reality that he is full of grace and truth. And don't you know that we deeply long for grace and truth? Sometimes we are longing for truth when we're marching in the streets or we're in the courtroom saying we want justice, we want truth. And other times we find ourselves saying, oh, what I don't need is truth. 
I need grace. I'm at the side of the road. The officer's there. I've driven too fast. And I am not hoping for truth at that moment. I'm hoping for grace. And here comes Christ showing us what the Father is like. And he's full of grace and truth, inextricably bound. Down to verse 18, John 1, no one has ever seen God, that is the Father, the only God, that is Christ, who is at the Father's side, Christ has made the Father known. That's what's happening here as we think about Emmanuel, as we think about incarnation. The God, man, has come. So if there are any children left, I invite you to draw this morning. I love to see your pictures. If there are any young people left, I love for you to take some notes. You don't have to take a lot of notes, but when you when you find something, hear something notable, mark it down, and then let me know about it after the service. It's important, young people, that you are listening because today is such a powerful picture of what we see, and God has given you a mind that can understand some of these things that are very important. So the incarnation begins with one question, and that is, who is God? Who is God? In the beginning, God. Before anything was, God was. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that's here is here because God created it. In the beginning of John 1, we read a very similar thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now we read in John 1.14, the Word has taken on flesh. This Word who was with God, this Word who was God and is God, has taken on flesh. But who is this God? Who is this creator? We can't see him. We can't know him. So we come to his word because he is not silent. He has told us who he is. If you've never known who made you, welcome. God's word is going to unfold for you this morning who it is that made you. And when we go from the first book of the Bible to the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 3, a man will be called to deliver his people named Moses, and he has an encounter with God. And this is a man who knows himself to be so weak, not powerful in speech, and he's called to go speak to the most powerful man on earth. And he asks God in that moment one question. He says, when I go to speak to the most powerful man on earth, who do I say has sent me? And God thunders from a bush that is burning, 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 not consumed. And he says, when you go, tell them, I am has sent you. For I am who I am. That is, I am the self-existent one. Before anything else was, I am. And he is not just I was or I will be. He is present tense at that moment and in this moment, I am. He is the beating heart out of which everything else emanates. He is the self-existent one out of what everything else was created. 
All things were created by Him. All things were created for Him, including you. So friend, this is good news to know today that you were made not by an impersonal force, not by a God who you can never know, but the God who declares to you, I am. Friend, if you are here, and you are, you're here because you were created. And this morning, you walked outside to light because the sun rose. You know, actually, the sun didn't rise, the earth's turning, but the sun and the earth both created. It rained today, not because any man put water in clouds, but because God brought the, the rain. And when you go to the beach on vacation, you will see waves rolling in every moment on every spot of beach everywhere in the world from the first day of creation until the last. They just keep rolling in. Why? Because God is. And right now, you have a little muscle in your chest that is beating, beating, beating. Why? Because God is. And he created you and he is holding your life in his hand. And so those, though these things are obvious, that all of this design has a designer, our world is filled with unbelief. And our own hearts have a great battle with unbelief. Is God really real? Did God really say? Is God actually important? Will Jesus return? Does God love me? And this unbelief, wants to grab hold of our hearts because we say to that God, I want to do what I want to do. And that's how all of us were born. What does a little baby say? Me have it. Right? No one has to teach them. They just want what they want. And so did we. And yet, faith comes to our hearts and it begins to drive out unbelief. And that's why we're here this morning, because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So we're here today so our faith can grow and our unbelief can get pushed out of our hearts and our minds. And this Emmanuel, this God coming in the flesh is revealed across the book of John. And we're going to look and see the statement that seven times Jesus uses this word, this title that was declared to Moses, this I am statement. And he used this phrase, ego a me. He used it seven specific times, but it's also used in John other multiple times. And so we're going to look at these seven statements, seven times Jesus used them. And then we're going to also look at the first, even before he used any of them, and the last in this book. Each one of them, our hope is to get a little different glimpse of this God come in the flesh. Each one of these is is powerful. And what we're going to see as we look through this book of John is that Jesus is a master teacher, a master of analogy and illustration, a master of taking very physical realities and then showing us a more important reality than just the physical. And in each case, we're going to see a declaration about himself, but then, and this is where the magic happens, then we're going to see something that's true about us. And then we're going to see why that's good news 
about who he is and who we are and what he's done, how they come together to make our hearts thrill. The bigger reality in each picture always is pointing to his love declaration on the cross. We're going to see his greatness full of grace and truth, but each one of these is going to leave you unsatisfied. Today's like a sampler plate. Little samples, little samples, little samples, but each one is worthy of further investment, further reflection. Each a great theme to go back and soak in. So at lunch today, pick one and discuss what it shows you about Christ, what it shows you about yourself, and how that is good news. All right. So the first one, you you can follow me in the Bible or you don't have to, but the first one is in John 4. And in John 4, this is not one of the formal I am statements. This is just the first time he ever used this declaration. And in John 4, this is uh, a, a very unlikely place for Jesus to use this phrase for the first time. And John 4 brings us to a question we were talking about yesterday as men we were gathering together. The question is this, does God know the worst things you've ever done? What does God think of the shame that you try hardest to hide? What do you do with your hidden sins? Why do you do your hidden sins? What will you do with your shame? You see, in John 4, Jesus has a conversation with the least likely person he could have a conversation with. He has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were outcasts. Jews did not talk to Samaritans. Men, generally in public, didn't talk to women very often. And yet here is Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, but not just a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman who is gathering water at noonday, not in the cool of the day. She's gathering when the other women weren't around because they likely were talking about her. Why were they talking about her? Because she was a woman with a history. Jesus knew this history. Jesus pierces into her heart, startles her, asking her how many husbands she has, knowing she has had many, many husbands and now lives with a man who is not her husband, which much more shocking then than now, startles her. And it marked her as a woman who carried shame, a woman who was an outcast because of that reality, much less being a Samaritan. But what we see in this conversation is that Jesus did not come to berate her for her failings. He does not come to point the finger at all the ways she's fallen short, though she has, as have we. But instead, Jesus speaks to her about what's most important in her life, namely what and who she is worshiping. And friend, more important than your sexual sin, more important than your hidden sin, more important than your shame is who and how you worship. For all of us are made to worship. We do so automatically and we do so every day. A few years ago, down the street from us at our local football stadium, there was a big football play. It was called the Minneapolis Miracle. Completely unlikely play. 
fourth and forever, last minute, huge game, ball thrown, receiver runs into the end zone. At that moment, the public address announcer did not have to get on the public address system and say, need everyone to please rise now, cheer very loudly, exuberantly, high five your neighbor, lose your mind, go nuts please, everybody now please, please a little louder. No, they were thrilled. We don't have very many winning moments in Minnesota, as your city does not either. (laughs) Our little fellowship of suffering together. But at that moment, everybody knew what to do. They went nuts. They were worshiping. And so all of us find things to worship, whether it's the new restaurant or the new song or a great sporting event. And Jesus knew that for her. And the woman said to him, down in John 4, 25 and 26, as they're talking about worship, she says, I know that the, the, the long-awaited one, the long-awaited Messiah, he who is called Christ, that is the anointed one by the Spirit, the expected one, the one we've been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years, when this one comes, this anointed one, this Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, The one who speaks to you, I am. And at that moment, there was this stunning reality. How could any person say of himself, I am, this phrase? And yet he did. And she runs and tells the whole town that he has told her everything she's ever done. And the whole town comes to talk to Jesus. But God appears and speaks so tenderly to her. Which is an echo. Don't go here. But Genesis 16, the first time God ever appears to any person in the Bible as the angel of the Lord, speaking as God, receiving worship as God, is again, the most unlikely person he could ever appear to. Go back, see it later. But Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord appears to an outcast homeless rejected, foreign, single mother with no hope, completely forgotten and completely destitute. And he speaks so tenderly to her in Genesis 16 that when she speaks back to him, she says, you are a God of seeing. God saw her and God sees you. And he sees all the yuck and all the pain And yet he's come to deliver us and heal us and forgive us. He's come to bring healing to your heart. This gathering of Restoration Church is a gathering of broken and wounded sinners, like a hospital gathering. This is not a gathering of a country club where you have to dress up and fake it and appear to have it all together. No, no. We come broken. We come needy. None of us has done it all right. All of us need this God of seeing who sees us and who loves us. If you have come and you are struggling and you are wondering, is there actually someone that could help me with this hidden sin, this ongoing struggle? I'm here to tell you that Jesus knows. He can tell you all you ever did. He is not inviting you to run and hide. He is not calling you to struggle alone. He is not disappointed with you. But he is saying, 
come home. Come home. And there are many here who would love to help you find the forgiveness that they have received, that we have received, and that you can receive as well. Okay. Now the first actual I am statement, John 6. Each one of these, just a quick touch. But in John 6, the crowds were hungry. They were off in the wilderness. The disciples are wondering, how are we going to feed all of these people? Jesus tells them, you feed them. They're like, this is impossible. We can't. The store is a long way away. We don't have enough money. How are we going to do this? Jesus does the impossible. He feeds the 5,000. This is unbelievable. And now people are excited because Jesus has fed everybody. Anybody here ever get hungry? Anybody here ever hungry right now and wondering when the sermon will get over so you can go eat? Well, when we're hungry, we want food. When we're hungry, sometimes we get a little hangry, right? And we want good food, if preferable, if possible. Hot, delicious bread is amazing, and Jesus has just fed them all with delicious bread. Jesus stunned them. And as he's speaking to them, he says, your fathers back in the Exodus period were hungry and God fed them with manna from heaven. Now I've fed you, all these 5,000 people with bread. But then he says, this isn't the main point. John six thirty-five. he says, I am the bread of life. He says, you have physical hunger, guess what? There's a more important hunger in your life. It is a soul hunger. It is a soul thirst. We seek to earn enough money to buy something that will actually satisfy us. Oh, if only we had a home, only if we had a car or a better car. If only we could buy this or that, then we would be satisfied. And yet that hunger remains. A deep soul thirst that drives us to pursue relationships and accomplishments and promotions and success. And yet this hunger and this thirst remain. Every human has it. Every commercial offers to appease it. And yet it remains and it goes on. And so Jesus comes and he says here in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So I have a question. Are you to come and receive this bread of life once or each day? Answer, yes. Will you eat today or will you eat each day? Well, you will eat today and you will eat each day, hopefully, if all goes well. Will you have hunger today? Or will you have hunger every day? Do you need to come to Christ today? Or do you need to come to Christ every day? Will your spiritual hunger be satisfied today? Or will it go on every day? Jesus says to them, don't work for food that perishes. Say, if we don't work, we won't eat. But he's saying there is something better than food. Do we need physical food? Yes. We're all going to be disappointed if there's no lunch. It's just that there is something more important. And Jesus is saying, this is what you actually need. More important than Chipotle is this. The deepest hunger of your soul will not be satisfied with stuff. You were made for relationship with the one who created you. And understanding the purpose for which we were made 
and how we are to function is so important. I'm reminded of an old, old commercial when the iPad first came out. There was an adult woman with her older uh, either father or grandfather who was quite old, and she said, do you like the gift that I got you? And he said, oh, I love it. And he pulls out this iPad in the kitchen and he puts a tomato on it and he begins to slice the tomato. And he wipes it off, he puts it in the dishwasher and he says, thank you very much. And she's shocked because obviously he doesn't know what it was made for. But we are walking around so often not knowing what we were made for, who we were made for. Christ is the one who satisfies. And so the rest of John 6 is this discussion where he pushes the metaphor and he says, we're to eat his flesh, we're to drink his blood. He's not calling for cannibalism. He's calling for what he said right there in John 6.35. Come to me, believe in me. But not just once, but each day come and believe. Come and receive. Come and feed on me. Be nourished by me. I am better than bread. I am the bread of life. Hudson Taylor says this, communion with Christ requires our coming to him. Meditating upon his person and his work requires the diligent use of the means of grace, especially the prayerful reading of his word. Many fail to abide because they habitually fast instead of feed. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This word life we're going to see repeated over and over and over. This whole book begins, in him was the light of life. And it ends, these things are written that you may believe, and by believing you may have life in his name. Friend, God made you for life, but life that is truly life both now and forever. There's a whole bunch of lies that want to invite you to life that's not truly life. But here, the one who made you is actually inviting you to life that is truly life. Manna was a momentary provision. Restaurants and grocery stores are everywhere with their momentary provision. But Jesus holds himself out to you. He says, come to me, believe in me. I am the bread of life. Glimpse number two, John 8, verse 12. Jesus says a second time, again, just be struck with the reality that here his hearers are hearing him use these two words, I am, and they are stunned. This is creating controversy. No one has ever spoken like this, and yet Jesus does. Jesus says to them in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right. So we think about what Jesus has declared. He says, I am the light of the world. Then we think, what does this say about us? Apart from Jesus, apart from light, what exists? What exists in our hearts and in our world apart from Christ? Darkness. Why is Jesus declaring this to us? Because he's actually putting his finger on the greatest need we all have, the greatest problem in our world. The greatest problem in our world is not illiteracy or hunger or homelessness. Those those are all important. The greatest problem in our world is darkness. 
darkness, which is evil. And it's everywhere in our world. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the light of the world. So thankful that this church is filled with children, little babies, older children, young adults. What is each one of their biggest need? What is their biggest problem? A lot of parents here, a lot of spiritual aunts and uncles. So even if they're not your kids, you, you love them as part of this church. What is the greatest problem for each one of these kids? I would argue that it is darkness. This is the Bible's answer. They were born in darkness and they're growing up in a world of darkness. Think about when you go to a hotel. You open the door to the room. First thing you do is turn on the light. You don't want to wander around in darkness. It is unsettling not to be able to see. And yet the darkness of this world is much worse. Each of these statements, Jesus is talking about this physical thing, and then he's highlighting this greater, deeper spiritual problem. But for us, for for his solution to affect us, we must truly consider the problem. The problem of darkness that he speaks of is actually life-changing when you begin to grapple with it. It shapes how you see everything. The greatest problem in Washington, D.C., darkness. The greatest problem in the U.S., darkness. What does this mean? Well, Back in John 3, he said this. This is the judgment. The light of the world has come into the world. And people throw a parade for Jesus? No. No. The people loved something besides Jesus. What did they love? They love darkness rather than light. Why? Because me want it. Because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Otherwise, his works will be exposed. So even now, there's a tension of saying, do I really want to pay attention to this? Do I really need this? Is Jesus really important? There's darkness just saying, come. Forget about this Jesus thing. Just come. Just go do what you want to do. Come, be master over your own life. We are born in darkness, doing evil deeds, hating the light. And this is life apart from Christ. For all of us, everywhere, a life and a world immersed in darkness, hating the light. It's what Isaiah spoke of when he said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Every one of us in this room has walked in darkness. Every one of us in this room has dwelled in a land of deep darkness. And some of you have encountered evil. Real evil. Young people, you may have only begun to experience evil. But the longer you live, the more opportunity and more likely you will see real evil. The biggest problem in the world is evil. It is darkness. And when you come face to face with it, it is shocking. And when you come face to face with it, what you want is a solution, an answer, some answer to this problem of evil and darkness. Each of us, apart from Christ, darkness. No light, no grace, no truth, no glory, evil, hating, being hated. But Christ has come. 
and he is the light of the world. And we get up in the morning and the sun rises day after day. Why? Because God created it. God said in Genesis 1-3, after Genesis 1-1, let there be light and there was light. Second Corinthians tells us that the same God who said, let there be light, has said to the heart of every believer, if you are trusting in Christ today, God has said to your heart, let there be light. And a greater light has shown into your heart, which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The godness of God has awakened in your heart if you're a believer because God has said, let there be light. And now no longer do we have to dwell in darkness. And if you've dwelt in darkness every day until today, you say, God, speak that over my life. Say, let there be light in my life. And he will. Into the darkness, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pray this for your kids. Pray this for one another. God, let light dawn. Let darkness be dispelled. A couple verses that are so good that just speak this to us. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light, believer, in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Jesus said in another place, I have come into the world as light, that so whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. One more place, he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Yesterday we read that we are now a chosen race, that we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, this Christmas is an opportunity to declare that you have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of marvelous light, both now and forever. This is glorious. Amen? We go to John 10, and we see 3 and 4. We're going to do these together. They're kind of smashed in together. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. And then he says, two verses later, I am the good shepherd. Good news. Jesus is a good shepherd. He is the door of the sheep. Bad news. If he's the good shepherd, we are the, we're the sheep. A little bit of a come down. Why does he say that we are sheep? Well, sheep were very needy, as you might know. Sheep were not overly brilliant. Sheep were prone to wander off. Sheep follow the herd or the crowd, and sheep often are unable to protect themselves. But sheep were also precious. The shepherd cared for the sheep. And so Jesus says to us, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters into my, through my door, you will receive pasture. You will experience life. He says in the next verse, John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The enemy, that is the enemy of your soul, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But I've come that you might have life, this theme of life, the bread of life, the light of life. He has come that you might have life that is truly life. Then he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, what it really means to be a sheep is what 
the prophet Isaiah said 700 years before Christ. I hope you use this verse when you're speaking to your Uber driver or your neighbor. Such a helpful verse, Isaiah 53, 6. And it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So your sin struggle and your sin struggle and my sin struggle, they're different, but we're all wandering off from the God who made us. All loving our own thing, going our own way. But that verse concludes by saying, the Father laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. The heart of this message that Jesus is the good shepherd is when he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason we have hope this morning is because the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He was looking forward to the cross. He was looking forward to God in the flesh becoming the Lamb of God who would die for us. But take your eyes down to John 10, verse 17 and 18. Because Jesus wants to make very clear to us that he's not a victim. He wants to make very clear to us he is not a weak, criminal, being just brought along by an unjust criminal justice system. He wasn't a victim in any way. No, he knew that he had the greatest power, which meant that what he did was the greatest act of love. And he says this, for this reason, the father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. This is why Jesus came full of grace to lay down his life and full of truth that his death would accomplish our redemption. So this one is the who has come in the flesh is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door of the sheep and he is the good shepherd. And now one of my very favorites is in the next chapter, John 11. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And oh friend, if you've been sleeping the whole time, wake up now because this one is of particular importance. I mean, they're all so important, but this is so important. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, it says something about us. And what it says about us is very weighty and very important, which is, you are going to die. I am going to die. Every person in this room, apart from Christ's soon coming return, is going to die. And in fact, one of us, maybe a little baby, will outlive the rest of us and end up going to a whole bunch of funerals. As we get older, death becomes more real, more obvious more painful. And if you've never experienced the bitter pain of death, you will. Those you love will die. It is woven into the fabric of this life on this earth. And some of you have experienced it in excruciating pain. 
Just speaking to my dad the other day, he's 88, just turned 88. Almost all of his friends have died. His wife, my mother, has died. Most of those he loves has died, aside from his kids and grandkids. But this text is so good and so important. Because while we all know we're going to die, there's a whole bunch of nonsense, a whole bunch of balderdash out there about what happens after we die. And children and young people, I want you to particularly be aware of this. Because there's a bunch of nonsense claims, and I want you to put your nonsense detector on when you're listening for these claims. Because people say a bunch of nonsense about what happens after we die. So imagine this, uh, junior high students. Someone like Wyatt. Wyatt, you go to school, and the meanest kid in school comes up to you. The same day that your mother made you the greatest lunch you've ever brought to school, ever. And the meanest kid in school says, Wyatt, if you give me your lunch today, I will buy you lunch every day for the rest of the school year. And you know this guy cannot be trusted at all. You know this guy is full of hot air. There's no way. You know he can't be trusted. Do you give him your lunch? I hope not. Well, people say a lot of stuff about death. They say, oh yeah, Fred, he's in a better place. Oh yeah, Willie, he's in the baseball field in the sky. Francis, she's looking down on us from above. Based on what? On what authority do they say such a thing? Ask your parents, kids. If a man comes to the door and says, invest all your money with me, and they say, where are you going to put it? They say, don't worry. It's going to a better place. (laughs) Door slam. And yet what happens after we die? So much more important than where our money is invested. And yet people buy this nonsense over and over. He's in a better place. How do you know? You don't know. But here in this moment comes this gripping story. Jesus has these friends, two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. And he waits when Lazarus is sick until he dies. And then he comes to him. And when he comes... He's encountered by these two sisters of this brother who's just died and they both say the same thing to Jesus. They know Jesus has done all of these miracles and they say to Jesus two words, if only. Jesus, if only you would have been here, our brother would not have died. If only you would have been here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus says to his disciples, it's better that I didn't come. Why? So you can see my glory. You can see my godness. You can see my power. You can see my ability. Because Jesus didn't just speak the words, I am the resurrection and the life. He displayed these words. He displayed his glory. He displayed his power. He displayed his authority. See there in John 11, verse 21. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he lives. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks, do you believe in me? 
She says, yes, Lord, and they talk. And then Mary comes. She says the same thing. Lord, if only you had been here. And Jesus is not detached. He knows what he's about to do in that moment, but he's not detached. Two massive emotions come over Jesus at that moment. He goes with Mary and her weeping. And it says that Jesus wept. We always think, oh yeah, I want to memorize that verse, right? He wept. Like, okay, got it. But it's such a powerful verse that God in the flesh would come and weep with this woman in her grief. But it also says something else that's very important in verse 33. It says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Tim Keller says it was like an animal snorting in disgust, just this kind of animal rage. And he asks, why would Jesus be raging in the midst of this funeral, in the midst of this weeping? And he says, because he sees there at that moment every funeral that he won't be at. He knows what he will do for Lazarus. But he knows he won't be able to do that at every funeral. And he hates death. And he is furious with death. And he wants to end death. But he also knows to end death and have victory over death and accomplish what he's saying. I am the resurrection and the life. He himself, the one who is life, will have to taste death for us. That his words might in fact be true. The bread of life had to be broken. The light had to be extinguished. The gate had to be closed for him. The good shepherd had to be slaughtered. And now this one who is the resurrection and the life had to die. But some of them say in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Jesus again, deeply moved. Second time it says it came to the tomb. It's just all of this emotion in him comes to the tomb and it was a cave and the stone was laid against it. He tells them to get ready and they say, Lord, it's been there four days. The smell is going to be overpowering. We don't want to roll back the stone. And he said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God, the power of God on display. It was for the glory of God that the Son of Man might be glorified through it what it says in verse 40 and in verse 4 said Lazarus has died and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so you may believe and then what does he say Lazarus come forth God in the flesh says to a dead man Lazarus come forth and what does he do he obeys he comes forth and if he wouldn't have said Lazarus if he would have just said come forth everybody would have come forth because he has that kind of power, right? But he did not just demonstrate. He did not just speak words. He demonstrated. This was not just talk. This was a unique moment in history. No one else in history has ever done this. No other religious leader has ever done this. Jesus is singular and unique because he is Emmanuel, God in the flesh, which is why we sing, oh, come, let us adore him. It is why I can say to my 88-year-old father, Dad, Jesus has secured for you an eternal redemption. Though you die, yet will you live again. 
Just here to tell you, you can look, but Amazon has nothing for this. The White House has no answer for death. Elon Musk has not figured it out. Only Christ has given you what you most need, and it is forever. John 14, more briefly. This is the sixth one. John 14 begins with Jesus saying, let not your soul be troubled. Anyone here ever have a troubled soul? I don't know about you, but oh, when I read this, I say, yeah, I know something about soul trouble, something about fear gripping my heart, anxiety constricting around me. If we're honest, for many of us, this is a really big issue. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Then he says at the end of John 14, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. I give you a different kind of peace than any yoga studio or therapist or pill or doctor can give you. He says, Again, in John 14, 27, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And for those of us who have known soul trouble, to think that there actually may be help and hope for our troubled hearts is frightening and wonderful, both. And Jesus here is speaking to a very tender part of our being. Where do we go at 3 a.m. when our heart is racing? Where do we go when we're all alone in this crazy world Look at John 14, those first verses, and see what Jesus said. I'll let Jesus speak for himself. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would not I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way to where you're going. How do we get there? Send us directions. Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I go to prepare. He wasn't going to redecorate. He was going to the cross. So that when we, as his children, arrive at the Father's house, he would say, there is waiting for you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There is a place for you in his Father's house with him. He says later in this chapter, I will not leave you as orphans, but the Father will send the Spirit and he will teach you all of this. If you have soul trouble, know this, that Jesus came to bring you to his Father. So when the disciples asked him, teach us to pray, he said, when you pray, pray like this, pray, our Father. And after Jesus rose, he appeared to Mary And he said, Mary, tell the disciples that I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Friends, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. To be loved 
and cared for by God the Father is even greater. The last I am statement, John 15. Here we are confronted with something that I feel very often, and that is my own weakness. Why am I not stronger? Why can't I work harder? Why am I not smarter or more gifted or more skilled? Why can't I get more done? I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but I need this chapter. And in John 15, verse 1, Jesus says this final I am statement. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And then down to John 15, 5. It's the only verse we can really look at. He says again, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Who is Jesus? He is the life-giving vine. Who are we? Again, a little bit of a come down. We are branches. Hey dad, I tried out for the school play. Great. What part did you get? I'm a branch. <laughs> you go out to the national forests and he's like, oh, I'm mounted, my waterfall. No, I'm a, I'm a branch. Is that good news or bad news? Well, it's actually really, really good news because we all know our limitations. We all know our weakness. And we all wonder, will our life have significance? Will we accomplish anything meaningful when we are so weak and so limited? And yet Jesus gives us the answer there in John 15, 5, when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. What are we called to do? Every other one of these statements included the word life. And now he shifts from life to fruit. And he says, if you'll abide in me, if you'll remain in me, whoever remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Your life will bear fruit. Jesus is promising if you'll do one thing, remain in him. Right now, you're listening to the word of Christ preached to you, which is helping you for the rest of your life bear fruit. That fruit is the good work that you do, and it will remain. And Jesus promises, apart from me, you can do nothing. We look around, we see all of these people in Washington, D.C. doing all of these things. And Jesus is saying, apart from me, none of it is going to last unto eternity. None of it is going to have eternal significance. But if you, if I, small, weak person, will abide in this life-giving vine, our fruit will remain. There is a promise here that is so rich. So powerful. There's so much to come back to in John 15. In the midst of all that's going on, he just comes back and he says, remain, remain, remain. Make it really simple. If you are here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, here's your to-do list. The one who made you, the one whom you were made for, is inviting you to connect your life with his, to come to him and eat of his bread. How do we do that? We believe. We say, I think this is real. I think this guy from Minnesota might not actually be nuts. I think he might actually be telling me the truth 
and that God's word might be true. If you've never trusted in Christ, you need to wrestle with that today. And Christian, there's one thing for you to do here. Go down to John 15, 9. He says the same thing in John 15, 5. He just says it another way. In John 15, 9, if you don't know this verse, is stunning. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. Remain in my love. Just remain. Just don't leave. Don't stop reading. Don't stop gathering with God's people. Don't stop meditating on this word. Remain in my love. That's the only thing as a believer, Jesus says, is necessary for the rest of your life. And then he says, I've spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. We're out of time. We're past time. So let me just leave you with a quote from John Owen. Why all this discussion of the glory of Christ? Why this study of who Christ is? John Owen says this. By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles and fears and cares and dangers, distresses, ungoverned, passioned, and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded is peace. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are not a God who is silent, but you have sent Christ to make yourself known to us. And so in these days of Advent, as we consider that God became a man, that God took on flesh to humble himself, to live a perfect life and die a death in our place, we worship, we worship, and we pray that you would grant us the grace to abide and mark our lives with your peace. We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen.